It's April 28th, 2019, and this is episode 395 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Hey folks, I'm Adam B. Levine, and on today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hey! Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey! And Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hello! Thanks to the hosts and to you listeners for joining today's conversation. So a couple of weeks ago, I spent some time with both Colin Gallagher, a longtime Bitcoin Foundation member, and Ali Medina, who's the current mayor of Emeryville, California. And uh, really, I'm going to tell you this story because it kind of leads into what we're talking about. We're not really talking about this. So the conversation we were having was about what I've been calling the California Stablecoin Cannabis Taxation Act, but that's not really its name. So don't look it up by that. It's like AB953 or something. I'll I'll put the exact uh, link in the show notes. Basically, what this does is it says that if passed in California, then the California regulators who are currently looking at and regulating the legal cannabis space or the medical marijuana space in California will have to come up with a way that allows for people who are engaged in the business of marijuana to be able to use a dollar pegged stable coin to remit their taxes. And my question to Ali was, what's the point of this? Why do we need something like this? And it all kind of came back to the conversation that we've been having for a long time about financial inclusivity and how there are just some industries out there that don't have the permission, even if legally they do. Some things are just beyond the pale. We saw this with Operation Choke Point. These weird kind of policies in place by a lot of banks to just deny services to any business that could be considered sketchy by the U.S. Department of Justice. So that included things like businesses in the cannabis industry and businesses in the adult industry and businesses with that were selling guns. And that's, you know, most people can't find much disagreement with that. But then the problem comes in when there were like companies that were getting caught up in this that were just basically making videos about cannabis, like marketing, and they got caught up in it. They weren't touching any of that. There were people that had previously performed in adult movies that were getting their bank accounts pulled and given a check and saying, Here, take it somewhere else. We don't want it. And then there were even companies that were offering like things like a 90 day money back guarantee or like refunds or something like that. Even they were getting caught up in this. So it's kind of like one of those things where like, who are they coming for next? You know, (laughs) right. Well, I'll tell you who they're not coming for next. The bankers, (laughs) weapons manufacturers, predatory lenders organizations that are doing things that are in violation of international norms, conventions, and treaties, the torturers, the white-collar criminals, politicians who use lobbying money inappropriately, none of them are losing their banking licenses. So it's very much a skewed morality that I don't know whose moral code this is. It's certainly not mine. Well, it's based on who's too small to fight back, basically. Right. And to the point to emphasize there is not even that this was done through a procedure or process, but that it was selectively chosen on the judgmental whims of the enforcer. So it wasn't as if this was something that would, a uh, choke point specifically, would be brought before a court or what you would have your rights to counter. It was, hey, your wife happens to be in the adult entertainment industry. You have a joint bank account. We're now going to summarily close your bank account because the Obama administration or the Bush administration or the Trump administration decided that they don't like 
the legal activity that your wife is engaging in. Yeah, this was never voted on. This was never like a law that was passed as far as I knew. It was like a, a rule that was just kind of written. And then the banks were interpreting it extremely liberally because they were scared of getting caught up in it. And so they were just enforcing it extra strongly, like applying it very, very broadly because they were on the hook if they violated it. And they didn't even really know what the rules were themselves. Well, let's be clear, because this was extrajudicial pressure by the Justice Department and Treasury in the form of a memo that said that if you don't de-risk, we're going to basically audit your bank more carefully. So it was using administrative procedure to apply something. There were no specific penalties. It was using the stick of selective prosecution and audit of the banks to essentially have a chilling effect and to make them shy about taking on certain risks under the idea that these activities were more closely uh, related to financial crimes. Early in Let's Talk Bitcoin's history, we ran straight into this because we had a bank account with Chase (laughs) under the name Let's Talk Bitcoin. And so that was... Can't say Bitcoin. (laughs) Yeah, can't say Bitcoin. So that, that was problematic. And we eventually found another bank to work with for other types of crypto stuff, let's talk Bitcoin went basically purely uh, purely crypto at that point. LTB Enterprises Incorporated. <laughs> I know, right? But that's really, that's what it comes down to is it's this silly thing that has almost more to do with the name than it does with reality. And just as that's true for crypto companies, that also has been true for marijuana companies. And that really is where we come back to this bill that we're talking about. The bill, so the topic that I really want to get to today, and then I think that there's a lot of ground to cover on, is that... We're looking for how cryptocurrency gets adopted. And we're looking for, in large part, how what we're doing becomes normal. And for a long time, I've had this idea in my head that what we're seeing is a process where different levels are accepting it at the most unacceptable level. And then it works its way up as it proves that it's actually quite useful. And we've seen that in terms of moving from, you know, like hardcore libertarians and, you know, people who want to buy drugs with less risk to, uh, you know, all the way up to kind of the investment banking thesis on kind of like the normal user side. And similarly, on the supranational side or the national side, you know, we've seen moves, at least from Iran. Uh, we've seen moves from Venezuela. And I had hoped that I would have an update to share today from Venezuela, but it looks like Christian did not get that in in time. So that'll have to wait for another episode. But really, the idea here is that just as individuals use cryptocurrencies to bypass restrictions put on them by governments or by, you know, regulations or unwritten rules, even in the case of something like Operation Chokepoint, we see the same type of thing with states. Since, you know, California, it's legal to operate medical cannabis, yet at the federal level, it's not legal. And because of that, the banking system is simply unavailable to those types of participants, even though it's supposedly a legal business. So that's the conversation I want to get to today is, Does it matter where use comes from, first off? Does it matter if it's Bitcoin in terms of this normalization process? Because obviously we're very interested in Bitcoin, but maybe Bitcoin isn't the thing that goes mainstream first. Maybe this solves a problem, you know, that exists in the real world that we're just not really thinking about, but which actually could be a really big problem. Well, the problem it seems to solve is the exchange rate fluctuation, right? I mean, they're still going to like if cities Mm. and counties are accepting uh, cryptocurrency for payments, they're still going to use a third party processor to immediately sell it or to hold a stable coin that they feel is like, okay on the okay list. Right. So let let me provide a little more context. I don't think I, I provided enough on the specifics of what this bill does and what it's supposed to accomplish here. So the idea here is that 
right now, the marijuana business in California is enormous and it's taxed. And so that tax needs to be collected. And the point that Ali made during our interview was that right now, the way that it's being collected is armored cars go and pick up gigantic bags of cash that smell like pot and deliver them to City Hall. And then City Hall gets them into banks. But it's like this gigantic rigmarole process because this entire (laughs) sector of business is cut off from the banking system. And so that's what this is. It's not a way to solve fluctuation problems or to accept cryptocurrency. It's a way to make it so that these legal businesses in the state of California can actually pay taxes in a way that doesn't incur huge cost and create a very dangerous situation where, I mean, like you can't steal a stablecoin transaction when it's being sent from one wallet to another, but you can definitely rob an armored car, uh, you know, and if it's got enough giant bags of cash in it, maybe it's even worth doing that. One that's kind of great that there's, you know, giant bags of cash that are tainted with the smell of cannabis that are getting into circulation in banks. <laughs> I mean, that kind of ensures the fungibility of cash forever. Indeed. <laughs> and maybe it's going to be the same thing with the stable coins, right? If they've touched this industry, which is considered by some to be sketchy or not okay, you know, those stable coins can't be digitally tainted and the fungibility is insured. So I like that point. Well, I mean, that's one of the catches, though, which is that if stablecoins start touching the cannabis industry and the banks are de-risking, that brings to the fore one of the fundamental problems with most but not all stablecoins, which is that most but not all stablecoins are backed by bank accounts, the old dollars. Now, those bank accounts are subject to de-risking, confiscation and shutdown. So if your stablecoin gets tainted, God forbid, by cannabis, and you can't wash that stink off, (laughs) then what happens if the banks freeze or seize the dollar deposits, the bank, that stablecoin? Then it's not backed anymore. Or you have liquidity issues, which almost instantly in a stablecoin result in it no longer being pegged because there'll be a deviation in the price. So there are some risks there, at least for bank account backed stable coins, that this will actually make their banking worse. I had a similar question for Ali. It wasn't exactly the same, but it was pretty similar in terms of like, okay, so you've got these giant bags of cash and now you're not bringing them to City Hall, but you still need to bring them somewhere to convert them into a stable coin. How does that happen? And she didn't really have an answer for that as it stands right now. I don't think they've even picked what stable coin or if it's one that's in existence that they're going to use. But one of the things that she floated was that, you know, this could effectively be an entire marijuana cash in, you know, vaults effectively backed stable coin if indeed the industry just doesn't want to deal with it. Because it's a huge source of revenue for the state of California. It's a huge source of revenue on a local basis. So there's going to be a lot of pressure. And there already is a lot of pressure for some type of solution to emerge. I don't know whether this is the one. So then what? It's a state-administrated bank that's basically backing these stablecoins? And that's actually been another proposal that's been on the docket in California as a way to deal with this issue was to have a state-backed bank. But the problem that Ali elucidated with that was that it was going to cost like $12 million or $20 million to set up the first charter just for one to service up to a certain amount. And they would need a lot more than that. So as far as like setting up a new bank is concerned, that's hard. But setting up a stable coin actually is a lot easier. And if you have the states and, you know, one of the other things that I said to her was that this has been tried before, right? We've seen pot coin with Dennis Rodman going to North Korea. And, you know, we've seen these kind of somewhat high profile attempts to build traction around this idea because it is a real problem and it's not just in California. And the thing that she said that was different was that basically it has government support, was that as the mayor of Emeryville, when she went and talked to somebody, they often said, 
that, you know, we've been approached by people in the crypto industry who have these ideas, but we felt like it was just compounding the issues that we already have with the feds, basically. And so when the, you know, the mayor of Emeryville comes to us and says, this is how we want you to pay your taxes, then that's a slightly different situation that implies that there's real support for it at the governmental level, even if it's just locally. So I'll stop talking now, but you get the idea. I mean, like, I'm trying to figure out why I don't like this and I'm having a hard time. So I would like to propose an alternative approach to this, which is the California Do Your Job Act, which should be applied to the banking regulators in California. Let's call it Operation Toke Point. And the, the point of this regulation would be to use the banking regulators in California that are responsible for licensing all banks that are state licensed in the state of California and tell them that if they unfairly discriminate against legitimate legal businesses, regardless of whether they're having pressure between federal and state government, they will not get their licenses renewed or they will have some other negative effect that's worse than the one that the federal government is imposing through this ridiculous regulation. How about actually regulating the banking system for the benefit of consumers, taxpayers, and citizens of this state by the regulators whose job it is to regulate the banking system. I know it's radical. Well, but see, that has the fundamental assumption that government can work for something that's other than obstructionist purposes. But come on, right? state regulations on banking are well-established separation of powers between state and federal government and have always been so. And it's part of the reason why bit license happened in New York. It's because mm-hmm. these types of regulations happen at the state level. So why are the California regulators not regulating the banks, which is their job? I mean, I already know the answer to that. Well, so so what's the answer to that? Because, I mean, I think that this is the root of the why are things like this appealing, right? Why are blockchains appealing? It's not that they're efficient. It's that they are unstoppable in certain ways, right? Yeah, I don't think that this is a particularly good thing, honestly, for crypto, because it's encouraging kind of these centralized entities that are bank account backed stable coins that effectively are banks, but minus a lot of the oversight that is required. And that doesn't make the situation better. What it does is it puts more pressure and adds more risk to an environment that already has risk. That's not going to help consumers. It's going to end up with these companies that are start operating as proxy banks in the stablecoin space, bringing all of the risk of banking without any of the regulation and oversight. Well, it seems likely that what we'll see is what we, you know, we've talked about JPM coin recently, and that's basically exactly what that is, right? That's a bank-backed, you know, stablecoin that also has the advantage of being a fairly high-profile bank and so probably has some cover as a result of that. So what the hell is the point of doing that through JPM stablecoin and not just using dollars within Chase? I don't understand what the point is of adding another layer of complexity when if Chase is going to accept money to pay taxes for pot, they could just accept it as, you know, U.S. dollars directly. I think that is what they're doing. They're just calling it a blockchain. They just updated their back end and decided to put a new marketing term on it. So Colin's perspective about this, let's talk about that for a second. Um, you know, Colin was the reason why I started paying attention to this stuff that's going on in California with regards to some of the laws that are proposed. Um, he was really sounding the alarm on it. And he views this as basically just another way to promote the stablecoin concept as a way to kind of get it out there. But in reality, as uh, Andreas, it seems like you're saying this is a solution in search of a problem effectively. It's a solution that's going to create bigger problems than the one that's solving, which I think is worse than that. In these types of situations, 
if I mean, like if you were talking to a marijuana business right now that's in the state of California, would you have any guidance for them in terms of like if this isn't an option and the other option is pretty much the banking system needs to fix itself or the regulators need to start regulating? I mean, is there an option? What I would suggest is now that you have millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars, start plowing them into electoral campaigns and throw some clout out there into the electoral system and become a political force to be reckoned with in in California and Colorado and Washington and Oregon and all of the other places that have progressive policies on this, because the problem is much bigger than just cannabis. So when it comes to the kind of uh, bigger nationals, right? I didn't get a full update from Christian from uh, Venezuela, but I did get a partial one, which is that the Petro still basically doesn't exist. He sent over a message a couple of weeks ago talking about how certain parts, certain things within the economy have are now denominated in Petros in terms of certain social assistance programs and things like that. But in reality, it's all being converted into local currency before it actually you know goes out to people. So in effect, nothing has actually changed there. You know, you look at situations like are going on in Venezuela, you look at situations in Iran, you know, it seems like there's a real case, as I've said, for a state-backed cryptocurrency whose entire purpose is basically to bypass sanctions because that's one of the things that cryptocurrencies can do. And it's one of the types of pressure that's applied to these countries. You know, I mean, why do we think we haven't seen more movement on that? Is this just inherent to governments not really wanting to give up the control that's necessary to push forward with something like this? Or is it just hard and we're still kind of waiting to see the first real examples? I think because it's a lot easier to evade sanctions with commodity purchases like oil and other resources and smuggling of those resources out of countries than it is to mm. to, to get into this high-tech game of crypto. I think the purpose of the Petro, it did what it needed to do, which was take a bunch of money off of other people's hands. You're asking why is it not functionally useful in any meaningful way. And I don't think that was its purpose. I think its purpose was just to take money from people. I disagree. I think that if you look at the Petro, it's not in use, so it's not a store of value or a medium of exchange. But what it has done very clearly, and I think that may have been the purpose from the beginning, is it established itself as a unit of account, which allowed the Venezuelan government to provide at least temporarily some price stability by denominating in this unit of account that they control. This is very, very similar to the Brazilian reais, the real, as it was called, which was introduced as a parallel currency that used the system of pegging to a basket of assets and international currencies in order to break the cycle of hyperinflation in Brazil. And that worked too. It's a common mechanism to break hyperinflation and that circulated but instead is used as a unit of account. So everything is still paid for in the traditional currency, but all of the prices are listed in this new currency, and there's an exchange rate. And what that allows you to do is hurry price stability, breaks this self-reinforcing cycle of inflation long enough. Then, successful, after a few years, you introduce a fiat paper equivalent to the currency and start circulating and now everybody's comfortable with it and it has price stability that's what happened in brazil it worked very well it broke the cycle of hyperinflation it's been done several times before i think that's what the petro was meant to do and the fact that things are priced in petro shows that it's actually working for that as a unit of account everything else about it is fraud and the whole (laughs) thing is ridiculous but i think that may have been the purpose 
Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here with Matt from Purse.io for a quick sponsored minute. Matt, Purse's mission since 2014 has been making Bitcoin useful. How are you guys doing that? Thanks, Adam. Well, with Purse.io, you can buy anything on Amazon using your Bitcoin, just like real money. Since 2014, we've saved Purse users millions of dollars. And this year, we have a new Chrome extension that you can add to your browser. So whenever you're shopping on Amazon, any Amazon product page will have a new little button that pops up and you can add that product to your purse shopping cart instead of your Amazon shopping cart and buy that item with your Bitcoin, usually for huge discounts, 15 to 20% or more. You know, since we recently started selling Let's Talk Bitcoin t-shirts, I've noticed actually that a lot of people, a surprising number of people are using credit cards to pay for those instead of Bitcoin. And when I've asked them, it's, they say it's because the value of spending it isn't worth it relative to the difficulty of, you know, getting it out of cold storage and all of that. So it seems like the discount is actually a somewhat important part of really giving people a reason to spend Bitcoin. Yeah, we find offering discounts to Bitcoin holders incentivizes them to bust out that hot wallet and actually use their Bitcoin like it's real money. To start saving today, visit purse.io or see the links in the show notes. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam. So after we finished recording this episode and with increasingly unreliable access to technology, Christian submitted a brief update on the Petro in text, which I'll share with you now. About the Petro. The Venezuelan government had big plans for the Petro. They wanted to come up with a currency that would let them bypass the economic sanctions that prevented them from doing business abroad. They also wanted it to be used domestically. They wanted citizens paying for products and services in their daily lives. If those were the objectives, then what a flop. No company accepts Petros, not in Venezuela, not abroad. Not even companies aligned with our biggest allies, China and Russia, are willing to. Most people are still confused about using the Petro. The government propaganda on local media keeps repeating that the Petro is the only cryptocurrency backed by oil reserves, and that's why it's the superior one. But they never explain how to access it or use it. Asking, do you accept Petros, has become a running joke among Venezuelans. The Petro doesn't exist, so it's a way of saying they don't want to pay for an expensive product. They still haven't released a wallet that lets you use your Petros, but that doesn't stop them from shoving it down our throats. On the first week of December 2018, the government decided to pay the elderly pensions in Petros. But how do they do that if they have no wallet? To be eligible for this pension and other government bonuses, you have to be registered in a webpage called Motherland. Most elderly in Venezuela already are registered. The monthly pension is equivalent to the minimum wage currently at about $6, which doesn't sound like a lot, and indeed it isn't. But for the elderly in Venezuela, those $6 might mean the difference between starving to death and being just hungry. The Motherland page already has a wallet, where you can receive the bonuses and old age pensions and withdraw them to a bank account. So what they did is they added support for Petros on this webpage. There was no option for sending Petros to other people's accounts or to inspect transactions on the blockchain. They could just exchange it to Bolivars and then withdraw it to their bank account. That means the Petro is closer to central bank digital currency than a cryptocurrency now. Our authoritarian government doesn't have a lot of incentives to create actually decentralized cryptocurrency based on Satoshi's ideas. They want the sovereignty of owning their currency, but just to keep it out of well-deserved sanctions. While on the inside, they want full control over people's finances. End quote. So when I got this update, you know, after we'd recorded the episode, I had a couple of questions for Christian and conducted a little interview via text, which I'll read some selections from now. So I told him that Andreas thinks the whole point was to provide another non-circulating point of value. Christian said they wanted people to invest in their thing. I think the possibility of a government coming up with their own currency that works apart from the rest of the financial system is a double-edged sword. 
You can have a North Korea with unstoppable money doing shady business, end quote. I asked Christian, where you said there's no option for sending the Petro to other accounts or to inspect the transaction on the blockchain, that reminds me a lot of how something like OneCoin, a multi-billion dollar Ponzi scheme dressed up as a cryptocurrency would operate, except that they had to limit the amount of Petro equivalents that could be converted into fiat equivalents because their fiat was dollars or euros, which people want. Do people want local currency in Venezuela more than they want Petros, even though the local currency is hyperinflating? Christian said, some people have kept the Petro. The government advertises it as a way to save money. Even in their wallet, it's listed as savings in Petro. I asked him if it works for savings, because, you know, compared to a hyperinflating currency, maybe a currency that doesn't actually circulate and doesn't exist is better. He said, no, not at all. But some people buy into the propaganda. It's way better to just convert it and spend it today. I said, so the price of the Petro isn't really keeping up with inflation, so you might lose at a slower rate than keeping in normal money, but it's still losing value in an absolute sense. Christian said, it doesn't fluctuate as you expect. They just set the price of the Petro by decree last time they raised it, in January. It went from 9,000 bolivars to 36,000 bolivars. If you had Petros during that time, you would have made quite a profit, but it stayed at 36,000 ever since. The other thing is that the Petro also doubles as a unit of account. The minimum wage is half a Petro. That means that if they want to raise the minimum wage, they have to raise the price of the Petro. That makes absolutely no sense, because they say the Petro is worth 60 bucks. They also say the Petro is worth 36,000 bolivars, and they keep it like that for months. I said, that's very interesting. Christian replied, but even if $60 does equal 36,000 bolivars at one point in time, it won't stay like that for months. The numbers are just made up. I said, I mean, given that bolivars are hyperinflating right now, it seems silly not to offer a real exchange rate, right? Christian said, the few that save Petros are counting one Petro equals $60. Right now, the equivalent in bolivars, it's outdated, but will eventually update that price when they raise the minimum wage, which they often do. But the people that save in Petro aren't really thinking in those terms. Most are gullible older people. At that point, another blackout hit, and we lost communication. A big thanks to Christian for helping us understand what's going on on the inside in a very unique situation. If you'd like to donate to Christian's work, there will be a tip link in the show notes for this episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Head over to ltbshow.com to drop us a tip and a message, or buy one of our extremely comfortable, very affordable, and highly stylish LTB t-shirts featuring our favorite quotes. Content for today's show was photo by Stephanie Murphy, Andreas M. Antonopoulos, Jonathan Mohan, and Adam B. Levine. Today's episode was edited by Dave, Crystal, and Adam, with music by Jared Rubens. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.